Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Okay, I taught you something last week, and I want, because the kids are here, to do it again. We've finally come to the end of our, and I say finally like it's a bad thing, it's a great thing. We've, we've come to the pinnacle of our, our study of the Ten Commandments. And we realized last week a lot of us don't have the Ten Commandments memorized. We don't know them, especially not in order. So we, we did something last week. If you were with me, you, you might remember it. We need two hands. If you've got two hands with you, raise them in the air. And on the he- end, end of your hands, you have these ten, what? Fingers. And we're going to use our fingers to memorize the Ten Commandments. And this will help the adults and, and the kids to memorize them this morning. So... Start with number one, one finger in the air, because there is one God and one God only. We need two fingers and turn them sideways like scissors, because we've got to cut the idols out of our life. Three fingers, it looks like a W. You need to watch your life and watch your mouth. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Four fingers, fourth commandment, because there's typically four Sundays in a month, and we want to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Five fingers, parents' favorite one, obey your father and mother. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Right? The sixth one goes like this. You go, bang, do it, bang, thou shalt not murder, right? That's what we're doing here. We don't put our thumb up because it looks like a seven. Seven can lead to six, but we do seven like this, and we say, you shall not commit adultery. And these two people are going back here, and you can ask your parents later. It's a whole different thing. (laughs) Eight goes like this, and we keep our pinky down because in some countries, if you're caught stealing, they cut off your what? Your pinky. So we keep our pinky down here. I'm not lying, though. I actually got a pinky here, and the ninth commandment is thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. And then 10, we reach out and we grab everything because we want it all. We got to have it all. And the commandment is you shall not covet. Good job. You did it. (laughs) Practice it all week. You'll remember the 10 commandments and never forget them again. Now, here's how I want to start today, because we've, we've reached the 10th commandment, the final one. We've been arguing that the, the heart of God and the law of God is human flourishing by God's grace and for God's glory. As we get to the 10th, I want to start like this. If you would close your eyes for a moment, everyone close your eyes. Promise no one will jump out and scare you. I promise no one will attempt to steal your wallet. I'm going to ask a series of questions, and as I do, with your eyes closed, I want you to consider your answer, and the first thing that pops into your mind is probably the most honest answer to the question I ask. So with your eyes closed, here's the first question. If you could have the car of anyone, what car would you drive? Second question, just visualize it. If you could have the home of anyone, there's a lot of nice houses in our community, you could have the home of anyone, where would you live? Third question, if you could have anyone's abilities, be it mental or physical or spiritual or emotional ability of any kind, if you could have anyone's abilities, what would you want? If you could have anyone's physical appearance, what would you look like? If you could have anyone's possessions, what things would you want? The sixth one's a little weird, a little uncomfortable, but I'm going to ask it anyways. If you could have anyone's spouse, who would you be married to? 
Careful, man. <laughs> Seventh question. If you could trade lives with anyone, who would you trade with? You can open your eyes. What may have awakened in us, what may have begun to stir inside of us is called coveting. And especially if you answered very quickly or with much enthusiasm, that's the thing that you were feeling in that moment, okay? And if you at each question went, no, I'm good, all good, I don't, I don't, I don't need a thing, I'm, all, I'm doing great just how I am, we may have awakened lying in you, which <laughs> we talked about that one last week, more than likely, somewhere in there, at least a stir of this thing called covetousness was taking place. And that is what the 10th commandment warns us about. I want you to hear the 10th commandment. It's in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, what we want to do this morning is we want to really understand what this is saying and what it means because when I look up uh, the word covet in English and in original language, it points to, to the word desire. And so it is easy or possible for us to translate covet as desire. So here's a question. Is desire in and of itself a good thing or a bad thing? In other words, if you have desires for things, is that just having desires good or bad? Did you know this? Did you know in Buddhism, the Four Noble Laws of Buddhism say that desire, desire is the reason for all suffering in life. There is a path to eliminate desires from your life. It's a narrow path, but it's the only path to experiencing freedom. If you can eliminate all desire, you will experience true freedom. What do you think? That's what Buddhism says. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible reveals that God created you and I and every person because He had a desire to share His glory, His goodness, and His love with us. That God, who is Trinity, for all time was full of bubbling over joy and glory and love and goodness, and it was shared amongst the, the three persons of the one God, Trinity, who is Trinity. And God said, I want to create a being that would be the receiver, the receiver of all of the glory and the love that exists within the Trinitarian God. And so we were made because God desired to share with us. And the Bible goes on to talk all throughout Scripture about the desires of God. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 tells that God desires from us steadfast love. He desires from us nothing more than steadfast love, not empty sacrifices. Micah 6.8 shows us that God desires that His people would do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with himself. First Timothy 2.4 says that God desires, he desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Second Peter 3.9 says that's the thing that motivates God to wait, to have patience, to not send Jesus to return yet because he wants more and more people to come to know Jesus, to trust Jesus, and to walk with Jesus. That's a motivating force. It's his desire. He wants more people to know him and not perish not knowing him. So, point I'm making here is that our God has desires. He's full of desire, and as human beings who are created in His image, it's what Genesis 1 tells us, we're made in His image, we are desirous creatures. So it is in and of itself not wrong to have desires. It is, in fact, God-ordained that we would be creatures of desire. So when it comes to the Tenth Commandment, desire isn't the problem, right? It's not saying you should not have desire but it's a particular kind of desire that it's warning us against, one called covetousness. What's the difference between desire and covetousness? 
Well, desire is wanting. Covetousness is wanting things that God doesn't want for you. And the easiest way to say it is like, God says, Kevin, this is what I want for you in your life, and I will provide it for you. And I go, God, I don't really care. This is what I want in my life, right? When that happens, we begin to have conflict between what God wants and intends to provide for me and the things that I want that don't fit God's program or plan. That's the inception of coveting and where passion and envy and craving and greed and jealousy and obsession and longing and lust for someone or something that isn't supposed to be yours begins to overtake and overshadow your mind and your heart, you're beginning to experience coveting. When you look at what you don't have and it stirs in you or it awakens in you a discontent with the things that you have and a longing and obsessing desire for things that you don't have but you feel that you should have, that's when coveting begins to take over in your life. What we find is that coveting really is a desire disorder. It's not wrong to have desire, but coveting is when our desires are disordered. And the problem here is when our desires are not in the right place, we desire some things too much and some things not enough. And so uh, our life begins to begin, uh, become oriented around things that are not meant to be ours, which has everything to do with who or what holds our affections. So another way to say it is coveting is really about misplaced affections that leads to a desire disorder. That's what St. Augustine said in the fourth century. He said that our biggest problem, the most foundational problem that we struggle with is that our loves are disordered, that our desires are disordered because we love the wrong things and the wrong people in the wrong ways. And we try to take things and people and treat them as if they are God to us that they might satisfy us in a way that they never can, that God only can satisfy us. Our loves are disordered, which leads us to disordered desires. When we do this, if that is true in your life, what happens is that the things and the people that you seek to have that you don't have in your life, they become more than just things and just people. They begin to become defining things and people for your life and for who you are. You begin to reject God's voice and His Word about who you are, and He's clear in His Word about who you are if you're in Christ. He was clear to the Israelites right before He gave the Ten Commandments. We saw this earlier in the series. In Exodus 19, God said, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of 400 years of bondage. I rescued you. I saved you. I will go with you. I'm not just saying get out of Egypt. I'm saying come with me. I'll live life with you. You walk with me, trust me, live life with me, and you will be my people, my own special people, a kingdom of my priests, a holy nation. That is the identity I am placing upon those that I have saved. And when we, our heart and our affections are given to these things and these people that God has not given to us and we become obsessed about these things, what happens is we reject the identity that God gives us and these things become the things by which we build our identities. Who am I? Well, then I'm just an accumulation of the things that I have accumulated at this point. I'm an accumulation of, of the achievements I have. I am my losses. I am my wins. I am the people who are around me. I don't know what God says. I am just this stuff. Soren Kierkegaard said that this is natural for humans. It is the normal state of the human heart. He means of the sinful heart. It is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. 
This is when we think, if I could just have this thing, this, this situation could just resolve in this other way, if I could just reach this level up, then I would be okay. Then I'd be, I'd be here's a big word, we'll talk about it more, content. Then I'd be somebody. Then, then all would be right. I'd be okay with myself because I'm not right now, if I'm honest. But if I had this, I'd be okay with where I am and who I am. People would be okay. Even God would be okay with me if I got to this point in, in my life. And the truth is, we'll never find our fulfillment in those things. That's a moving target, and it promises much and, and satisfies very little. No matter how noble or reasonable or good those things or people may, may seem to be, they will never satisfy us or answer the question of our heart about who am I and what am I doing here. That's not my idea. That's Jesus' idea. He said that in Luke 12. Listen to this. Jesus said, Beware and be on your guard against every form of covetousness, for not even when you have it all, not when you have all of the things that you have been longing for, when you are full of abundance, even when you have that, this life does not consist of those things that you've gained, of your possessions. Those are just things you have for a season. They're not who you are. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing because those things never satisfy the soul and they rarely last more than a short season, right? We are not the things and the people who are around us. The real problem is when our wants get out of order because our loves are out of order. When our wants are displaced and are disordered because our loves are disordered. And the big thing that we need to do in the face of that is to check our affections and to really begin to ask questions about who has my heart and what has my heart. What are the things that I dream about? When I'm not thinking about anything else, what am I thinking about? When I'm in the shower and the water is running, what's on my mind? What is the, the thing when I get up in the morning and go, I'm going to go live my day? What is the motivating force that's driving me into all of the decisions that I make and carrying me through all of those moments? What am I fighting for? What am I sacrificing for? I need to check my affections. What do I love? And what we may find if we check our affections is that there may be some things Maybe everything, there may be some things that are disordered in our loves, and it's led to a disordering in our desires, and it's moved us from, I kind of want something or I'd like to have something to, I have to have it. I long for it. I long for it because it's taking a place in my life that it shouldn't have in my life, and it's dangerous. In light of this, listen to the commandment again. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife. You should not covet uh, your neighbor's male servant or female servant or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I love the specificity, uh, specificity of, of, of the list because it really begins to encompass this. Society is being built 50 days after being enslaved. Now you're in the wilderness. You're becoming a society. As society is being built, it begins to think about all of the kinds of things that the Israelites are going to covet within their community as they look around at each other, as they build their little lives together. But it, it doesn't, it's not a completely exhaustive list. It doesn't include everything that could ever be coveted except for the, the phrase, or anything that belongs to your neighbor, which means it's not just about the, the donkey or the wife or the house or the land. It's about much more than that. 
And today we can read it and we can examine it. And I don't know if any of you have been coveting your neighbor's donkey lately. I don't know when I said if, if, you know, if you could answer this question, your neighbor has possessions. If you could have any possession, you were like, oh, the donkey. <laughs> Shoot, that's the one I've been wanting. It says anything. So today we can read it. We can examine our own life and our own day, our own culture, knowing this, knowing this with surety that we're very likely to look at our neighbor's possessions, at their positions, to look at their abilities, to look at their accomplishments, and to begin to want what they have. It's anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, at first glance, when you come to the 10th commandment, and I did this a little bit, as I was moving through my study of the Ten Commandments for this, this series, as I got to the Tenth Commandment, I was kind of like, this is, feels like an underwhelming ending because I get the, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. We even last week with the truth, we go, there is devastating, devastating effect when we mishandle the truth. But this is like, it's just like not wanting something. This is kind of like the silent inward sin. What's the big deal? doesn't seem like this is on the same plane as all of the others. James in the New Testament, in, in his letter, said that there's actually a lot of trouble that comes with covetousness. Listen to James 4 verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, the desires, the, the things that you have your heart set on that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And James says that these over or misplaced desires uh, are the sin beneath the other sins. James chapter 1 verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, that when lust has been conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Don't be deceived about this. This is not the silent inward sin that doesn't really affect anyone and doesn't cause any real harm in the real world. Oh, yes. Yes, it does. Because remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus said, the good man out of his good heart brings forth what is good, right? The things that are in our heart come out. The bad things come out. The good things come out in our lives. And Paul, when he's writing the letter of Ephesians, he then begins to pull back the curtain and show us maybe, maybe the most powerful truth about covetousness, one that should really arrest our attention, and it's the relationship between the 10th commandment and the first commandment. Here's Ephesians 5. For this you know with certainty, certainty, okay? We're not, we're not just speculating here. This you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And this is a New Testament device that we see again and again that covetousness is paired with idolatry. Colossians 3, 5 says covetousness amounts to idolatry, that it comes from the very same place. They are, they are one and the same. Paul is saying is that the desire disorder isn't like just some little sin, as if there was like just some little sin, like if that was a thing. This isn't just no big deal, but it has a hook. It has a hook in your life, and it's taking you somewhere. He spelled it out that covetousness is idolatry. Covetous is taking things and people and placing them on the same level or higher than God Himself. It's saying, I need this in order to live, and if I don't have this, I will never be okay. 
I'm not okay until I get this, till I, I achieve this, till I level up, till I receive this. So I'm in this relationship. Till I've gotten to the next stage, I won't be okay. I won't be okay as a person. I won't be okay for my family. And I won't be okay with who God is to me. It's when we begin to define who God is by our terms. Dustin said, God is good. We sang about it. He read about it in Romans 8. And we start to go, well, is he really good because I haven't gotten this thing yet? And this thing is the determinant on if my life is good. And so if I don't have this thing and God says he's good and he's for me and I don't have it, then God must not be good. And what happens, subtly a shift takes place. Our allegiance and our worship of the one God with no distractions of idols begins to shift and we begin to worship these things and these people as if they are God because they determine our worth, they determine our value, they determine our okayness in life and our worship shifts to these things. Here's a picture for you of this. This is helpful for me. I have a neurotic tendency to make lists. I love lists. I don't know if any of you are like me, but I, I obsess over list making. And not like important lists, like the 10 things I need to do today, but like, like uh, the, the top 10 movies starring a man named Tom. Like that's a list that I have, I have made, and I have updated over the years. It's a thing I do. Now, here's the thing about lists and, and the lists that I make, which are often top fives, top tens, top 25s. I have a list that's the top 100 movies, in my opinion. You start with the top being the most important, and you end at the bottom being the least important. I just taught you something. You didn't know that before, right? No. Of course it is. With lists, we go from most important to least important. So when you look at a list that's the top 10, you go one is the, the most significant, and, and 10, it's like, well, you know, it's there on the list. It's not insignificant, but it's the least among these things. It would be a huge mistake to look at the Ten Commandments like that. It would be a massive mistake to look at the Ten Commandments from top down, but instead we should look at the Ten Commandments from one and moving around in a circle. Do you see what I just did there? If you didn't, look back up again. Instead of looking from top down, we should look at the Ten Commandments at one and moving around to ten because there's a very close and intimate relationship between the First Commandment and the Tenth Commandment. They're deeply connected and they are deeply in relationship to each other because they encompass all of the other commandments within them. Do you see that? And the first commandment, if we really fully follow it, if we reject all other gods and all false teaching and we love the one true God and we bow before him, we walk in his ways and we follow him in all of our days and we obey commandments 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. But if we constantly are falling to commandment number 10, it's not just an inward secret silent sin. It begins to express itself outwardly in 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You see that? And 1 is meant to satisfy us in such a way that, that 10 is never a problem. But if 10 is constantly a problem, it may begin to reveal to us something that in reality we've been rejecting 1 all along. Do you see that? You see that? And in a way... All of the other commandments, the sins associated with the other commandments are just another expression or variation of commandment number one or commandment number ten. They all fall beneath one and ten. Keep that picture in, in mind as you think about the ten commandments. And in this way, coveting, as we move around, is like the, it's like the perfect summation of all Ten Commandments, because to break the Tenth Commandment really is a serious violation of both loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. 
It's a fitting summary. It's a fitting, fitting book, and it's a fitting way to come all the way back around to one. Now, it may seem strange when you just read the Ten Commandments because you, you start at the beginning, and it's, I am the Lord your God. This is how it was in the movie, The Ten Commandments, right? You shall worship no other gods before me. So you start with monotheism, this massive, big, profound, beautiful thing, and then you kind of get to 10 and you go, and don't look at the donkey, you know? (laughs) And you're going, okay, so we started with monotheism and we ended with don't look at the donkey. But in reality, if you consider what God has done here is He has said, I am the Lord your, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, do not allow your gaze to be fixed on any person, place, thing, possession, not a donkey, not a house, not a spouse, not an achievement, not an ambition, not a goal, not anything in life that might rival your devotion and allegiance to me because it will become the object of your worship and it will not fulfill you, it will not satisfy you, it will not cause you to flourish by my grace and for my glory. It ultimately will lead you astray, bring you harm, nothing but disappointment and it will begin to affect your neighbors as it works its way out in your relationships throughout your life and the other commandments, right? So God says don't let anything anything take away because what I have for you as the God who saved you, the God who rescued you, the God who travels with you, and the God who promises to provide everything that you need for this life, it will always be better than those things anyways. So, do not covet. Don't give your heart away so cheaply like that. What do we do when the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak? Or in this conversation, What do we do when we have affection for God? We truly do. But our eyes keep wandering around and getting fixated on other things that gain our interest and and becomes an affection and becomes an obsession. How How do we address that? Okay, open your Bible to Philippians 4. If you got your Bible with you, open it to Philippians chapter 4 in your New Testament. As you're getting there, you can see how coveting is an expression of discontent, discontentment. And I'm not reaching here to say we all are very familiar with the feelings of discontentment. And some of you may live your life every day, all day, just strangled by the feeling of discontentment. I gave you this before we read uh, Philippians 4. Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan preacher. He said this, God is not saying that you cannot offer a complaint, a moan, or a lament. The Bible's full of those. Many of you have hard circumstances that you're enduring. Listen to this. Many of you have hard circumstances that you're enduring, and the Bible gives voice to express those cries of pain. We're talking about something a little different here. Do you always want the next thing or the last thing? Is it always, it was so much better then, or always, it will be so much better when? (laughs) I think a lot of us. A lot of us live seasons of our life or maybe our entire life with that mentality. It'll always be better when or it was always better back then. I've had a lot of friends who know me well say I was born 40 years old. And it's about right. I think it was more like you know, 39 and a half. But I, I always wanted to be an adult. When, when you're in elementary school, what do you want to be when you grow up? And everybody's like a policeman, a firefighter, a, you know, whatever. Mine was like an adult. (laughs) 
And in reality, I always wanted to be older. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a teenager because it meant freedom. And as soon as I could get freedom, my life would be, it would be set. And I got to be a teenager and I was like, this kind of stinks. I want to be an adult because when you're an adult, then you're in charge of your own life. And all the adults went, (laughs) oh, (laughs) right, that's cute. And then you get to that point and you look back and go, if I could only go back, there's so many things I'd redo Things I would have done differently, said differently, I would have felt differently about them if I just knew then what I know now, if I could just go back. Or if you look and you go, if I only had the energy to go do this thing that I I, I really am passionate about or want to do, but I just don't have the the ability to do it now. Some of you, you're in the middle of your career, you're in the middle of your job, and you're like, I just, I got to get to the next job or I just can't wait till retirement. That's it, man. Life will be set. And some of you who are retired are like, I just wish I had something to sink my teeth into. Something just to, to work at and to, to you know, pour out what I've got, the skills and gifts God's given me, an environment with which to, to share my life. I just wish I had that. Some of us, you've got a lot of kids running around at the house and it's really loud and you go, empty nester sounds really nice. Yeah, that'll be great. Because then we will see each other and talk again. It'll be wonderful. And some of you go, it it just would be so nice to have a child in our home that we could pour our life out onto and just love and care for. It's it's for a lot of us, we spend our lives with either the the next thing or the last thing in mind all the time, every day. Listen to Paul, Philippians 4, verse 11. This is great. (laughs) For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. For I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. For I have learned to be content. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. I love this passage. I love this. A few things I want, I want to show you first is about this phrase, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. This is, it's about contentment. What a, th- what a thing. What a concept. One that I think very few people taste or taste often in our days on earth. Some people never learn contentment. What's contentment? Contentment is, is being able to be okay and have peace and being okay uh, apart from outward circumstances fitting what you desire what you want. It's being unmoved by more or different. It's saying, I have peace. It's a condition of being at peace regardless of what circumstances you're in. It's contentment. Paul says, I've learned how to be content. He says this contentment can, can be constant in your life. It's not a thing that you can just taste once, but it can be something that moves with you. He says, in any and every circumstance. Verse 12 says, it's prosperity to hardship and everything in between having it all in abundance, having very little and struggling to make it through the day. I can be content in either one. I've learned it. He says it's like a secret. It's like a secret to be discovered. It's a peace undisturbed by the desire for more or different. Third thing in this that I I love um, is, (laughs) Paul says, I have learned this. And I love that because I'm encouraged by it. I'm brought comfort by it. Because for a moment there, without that phrase, I'd go, Paul got something in his salvation that I just didn't get. Right? Paul says, I didn't have it right away. I learned it. 
Contentment had to be cultivated in my life. Listen, the context by which Paul writes Philippians 4, 11 through, through 12, and we'll see another verse here in a minute, not there yet. Paul says, uh, I have learned the secret to contentment. Paul's in prison, in a Roman prison as he writes this. He's in a Roman prison. He has people who have, who have, he thought he could trust, who have thrown him under the bus. People have taken credit for his work. They have shamed him. They have said bad things about him. They've taken credit for all of the things that he's done. He said, I've learned the secret to contentment while he is in, wrongfully incarcerated in a Roman prison in a pagan society that's outwardly hostile towards Christians and people he thought he could trust to turn their back on him. Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment. Sitting in prison here, I, I just tell you, I'm still unaffected. I'm still good. So what is it? What's the secret to this condition, to this state of mind, the state of being? To being unmoved by conditions, you're still solid, you're still good. It's verse 13. Listen to this. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Isn't it funny that this verse has become like the cliche verse for the black eye grease or for your shoes if you're an athlete or people will mutter it, they'll say it before they go take a test or or have a job interview. I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through Christ. It gives me strength. What, what do we do? We're, we're offering some kind of incantation that we're reaching up to a power above that we might win. In fact, there's a celebrity preacher, which is a absolutely silly phrase and, and a, a very dangerous concept, by the way. Um, but there's a celebrity preacher who wrote this about Philippians 4.13. He said, Scripture makes it plain. It is possible to see your dreams fulfilled. It's possible to climb new heights. It's possible to embrace your destiny. Philippians 4.13. That's a common usage uh, of this verse. It's, it's all things means Jesus will make you win when you really want to win. And I'm not sure exactly if it's if you say it 10 times or if you really concentrate on him hard or, or how it works, but if you can figure it out, then Jesus will make you win at whatever you want. Nothing could be further than from the truth about what Philippians 4.13 means. How do we define what, what uh, Philippians 4.13 is about? It's not a promise that God will give you strength to do whatever you conceive of or even whatever you desire to do in this world. It's a Christological promise. It's about the power and the presence of Jesus Christ being with His people. Do you hear that? Philippians 4.13 is about the power and the presence of Jesus Christ being with His people and the application of 4.13, the lesson that He's learned is directly connected to the context of Philippians 4, 11, and 12. I have learned the secret to being content in all circumstances. The secret is I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. It's not about winning and winning in life. It's not about leveling up or getting the thing that your heart desired. It's about being content regardless of the circumstances. Why? Because Jesus is with me, and He is powerful. And He has promised His presence, and He has promised to provide for me not just what I need now, but He has promised a future provision that is so glorious and so wonderful that I'm okay in whatever circumstances I'm in. Look at the promise of Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What does all your needs mean? Well, it means all that you need for a god a God-glorifying, soul-satisfying life. All that you need for a God-glorifying, soul-satisfying contentment in life, regardless of circumstances. He'll, he'll give you everything that you need to be at peace, regardless of what you face in this life. What does it require? Paul's contentment. 
Paul's, uh, what he needed for ministry, what he needed to be a man of grace and truth and peace. What did Paul need? Paul needed to count all things as a loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus as Lord. That's it. Go, go to Philippians 3, uh, 6 through 17. Go and, and read it this week. Write that down that you need to go and read Philippians 3 and run your life through the matrix of what Paul says there. See, how do you relate to that? What, what does that look like in your life when he counts all things as not just less than but loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ as Lord? It's about knowing Jesus now. It's about having fellowship with him now, being more precious, more valuable, more soul-satisfying, more fulfilling than any other thing or person on this earth. This means the secret that Paul discovered is faith in God's sovereignty and care in the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? I've learned this lesson. It's like a secret. The secret is faith in God's sovereignty and care in the goodness and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. When we have little and have lost much, Jesus comes and he shows you, I'm enough I'm enough, I'm everything that you need, and I'm I'm able to supply all that you need in the face of the loss and the want that you've had. When we're full of abundance and we've had everything go our way, Jesus shows up and goes, that's good, (laughs) get to know me. I'm better, I'm more valuable, and what I bring is forever. That Jesus is everything that we need. And Paul's life flowed from this. His ministry flowed from this. It flowed from, his contentment flowed from this. It it flowed from faith in Jesus to be present, to be powerful, to be with him, and from the provision that Jesus would give for his entire life to be all that he would need in times of plenty and in times of want. The secret is faith in God's sovereignty and care found in the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus. That means covetousness, listen to this, is exactly the opposite of faith. Think about that for a second. We're almost wrapped. Covetousness really is the opposite of faith. It's loss of contentment for Christ in such a way that we long for other things. We crave other things to satisfy the emptiness inside of us, which only the presence of God himself can truly satisfy. That means that the battle against covetousness is a battle which must be uh, fought against unbelief in our life. It's really not just, oh, I need to want that thing less. It's about, I need to believe more in the goodness and the presence of, of Jesus Christ. So whenever you feel the slightest rise, I mean the slightest rise of covetousness in your heart, it's not enough to go, ah, it's no big deal. It's a silent sin. But like Jesus said in Luke 12, he said to be on guard, be watchful, be ready to fight it with every spiritual weapon that you have. Here's Hebrews 13. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. And this context talks about honoring the marriage covenant, loving your neighbor, rejecting false teachers and false gods, and about bearing God's name rightly. So a lot of the commandments are here. It says make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself, Jesus has said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. We need to remember who is with us right now. We need to remember who is with us right now. He didn't just save us and say, good luck with your life. No, he said, come with me. Just like God said to Israel as he brought him out of Egypt, Jesus said, I'm freeing you from the bondage to sin, from a life apart from God. 
by saying, live with me, where I am your God, I am your king, I am your source, I am your everything. The friend who sticks closer than a brother, the one who will never leave or forsake us, the one who is the high priest who intercedes for his people, the one who offers forgiveness for all of the times that we break all of the Ten Commandments and we turn to him for mercy and he's faithful to give to remember that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that His words are true, so we can build our life upon His words, and that He wishes for us the same thing that God wished for Israel coming out of Egypt, flourishing by His grace for His glory, and in Him is life. And when we walk in Him, we walk with Him. What's offered is life and life abundant. Abundant. Can I pray for you? Father, this morning... We are people of, of desire, and that is not sinful or wrong in and of itself. It just shows the evidence that we are made in your image, the God who has desire. But where your desire is pure, and your desire is always marked by grace and by joy and by love and by peace and by the contentment that you had within yourself, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect unity, our desire is so often marked by, by uh, a misplace of affections, by envy, by jealousy, by coveting. And it's, it's one thing to read the passage, but it's another thing to begin to count the cost and recognize the danger of, of living a life marked by coveting is that we stray and we don't worship the one true God. And so we follow things that don't lead to life and don't lead to flourishing, but lead to danger, to harm, to disappointment. And it's not just us. It has an outward effect. It begins to live its life in our society, in our community. We can see the evidence of it. We just haven't believed that's how it came about. So Holy Spirit, would you do this? Would you, would you help to teach our hearts and our minds what's true about our loves and show us where we've disordered or misplaced our affections, where something went from interest to affection to obsession and it's moved the trajectory of our heart, our worship, and our life. And would you help us to see Jesus? As we sang earlier, to turn our eyes upon Jesus. As Hebrews says, to fix our eyes upon the author and the perfecter of our faith. Because it really is only when we know love Jesus Christ, that we begin to receive this identity as sons and daughters of the living God, of co-heir with Jesus Himself, as dearly loved, fought for, as accepted. But it comes only when we know and love and follow Jesus. So would you help us, Spirit, to do that today? Break us free from strongholds of obsession. Turn our affection fully upon Christ. By your grace and for your glory. Amen.